Hello, you guys. Matt Moberg here. Hope that this finds you in a lovely and well-air-conditioned place. Um, I'm doing a podcast right now, which is really just a repeat of the message from last night. I would have just given you a copy of what was said in the service last night, but here's the thing is that we did our church gathering at the table um, in the basement of the church last night, which is beyond our ability to record uh, what went down. We did it in the basement because it was 175 degrees upstairs, and we thought maybe that'd be an inconvenience for some people. So we offered them some some cool air instead. Might do so again. Not really sure. We'll play it by ear. But uh, it's been brought to our attention as of late, which is why I'm doing this this morning at 7 a.m. Um, it's been brought to our attention as of late that there are a handful of people out there who are, are uh, listening to the podcast, but, but they don't come in the building, whether because they're too far away or because they're afraid of the way we smell. I don't know exactly the reasons they, they're different, but, but uh, with that in mind, we figured we might as well um, try to recapture some of the message that was given last night, and that's why I'm here this morning. So let me... Uh, I don't really know how to best do this without locking eyes with people. It was a very interactive message last night, but let me try to give you somewhat of a Cliff Notes version. We are in the, our, I guess now, we're coming to the end of what has been the past eight weeks of a series called Kingdom Come, where we are looking at the seminal moment that sits at the center of the liberator's life, where Jesus stands on the Mount of Beatitudes and he gives his Sermon on the Mount. Which, by the way, most scholars would agree, uh, is not like verbatim, this is a sermon that Jesus gave. We did not find a transcript that was from one of his sermon speeches that we all of a sudden have been carrying around for the past 2,000 years. What this is instead is this is Matthew's attempt to try to give a collective summaration of what Jesus' teachings all entailed. If we were to ask Matthew, Matthew, how do we know what Jesus' main teachings were? What were they all about? Like, um, what he did then is he created this scene. He said, uh, these are the central uh, teachings that define the ethics of Jesus of Nazareth. These are the, the core components. If you were to ask what he came here to say, these are what those things would be. So that's what the Sermon on the Mount is, and we've been going through the octagonal blessing that starts out the sermon, the Beatitudes, and tonight we're at the last one. So I suppose if you have your Bible, um, now would be an appropriate time to pull it out, because we're going to be going to Matthew 10, nope, we're going to Matthew 5, 10 through 12, and it's uh, uh, just the final Beatitude here. There's two pieces in this last Beatitude. Um, and we're going to deal more with the latter piece and less with the former piece. And you'll see why in a second here. So this is Jesus on the Mount of Beatitudes. And he starts off like this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, I talked about this a few weeks ago, but let me just give you a brief refresher and remind you that righteousness, that word is dikeasune which means, uh, to quote the Gospel of Radiohead, everything in its right place, everything as it should be. All of our relationships are healthy and sound according to the laws of shalom, 
There is right relationship between you and your body and your bones and your spirit and yourself. There's right relationship between you and your neighbor and your sister and your brother. Right relationship between you and the soil, you and the air, you and the city that you live in. All of these things, everything is in its proper place. The world is equitable. The world is just. The world is inclusive. The world is flourishing. And what Jesus is saying is that God is on the side of those who are being pushed back when they try to push for a world like that. He says, blessed are those who are being punished for pursuing justice. Blessed are those who are being harmed in their efforts to heal. Blessed are those who are being stepped on for speaking up and stepping forward. And then he says, for what the world won't give you here, God's going to give you in heaven. Now, that first part of the blessing is beautiful, right? I mean, it's a morale boost. It's warm, dare I say, inspiring. It feels good, especially if you have been among the persecuted, especially if you've been on the receiving end of um, the haters, right? But it's the second part that's more problematic for me. It's the second part that I want to pull up closer and just sit with a little bit longer today. And here's what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here's the problematic part. Rejoice and be glad. You know, enjoy it. Let your hair down. Pour that extra glass of wine. Throw a party. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Are you hearing how quickly this text moves from inspirational to completely irrational because Jesus here he says that you need to rejoice in the midst of rejection you need to go to the party in the midst of persecution you need to laugh even while life is giving you every reason to lament and I think we and by we I I guess I mean me um, we struggle with that because it's kind of crazy and maybe even a little offensive Because when I hear Jesus commanding us to choose joy amidst all of the injustice, I hear him telling me to turn off NPR and turn on KDWB. I hear him telling me to grab a cold one and just enjoy Sunday afternoon football and not worry about the NFL's suppression of freedom. I hear him telling me to go skiing on on a nice lake and not worry about the global water crisis that's unfolding all around us. I hear him telling me just to uh, kick back and hang with my kids and not worry about what my country is doing to immigrant children today. And when I think about this, to be honest with you, if this is what he is saying, then it just all feels like everything that I hate. (laughs) I mean, really, it feels disconnected. It feels delusional. It feels naive. It feels selfish. It feels ignorant. It feels hateful. Thankfully, What I've come to discover, as I've done a full 180, is that there is a difference between how I see this text and what Jesus is saying inside of it. Because when I actually sit down and listen, um, Jesus isn't talking about joy that's unconcerned with justice. He's talking about joy that's in the middle of the joylessness. He's talking about doing the work of going into the darkness without making yourself leave the light first. Jesus is saying that it is essential that you go to the protest, but it's also essential that you go to the pool with your kids. Uh, Jesus is saying that it is essential that you march to the Capitol, but it's also pretty important that you take a nap. 
Jesus is saying that it is so good and beautiful and essential that you fast in solidarity with the hungry around the world. But you also need to eat some Barley's cake from time to time. Here's what I'm learning uh, from this text in my life right now is that the only world that we can actually enhance is the one that we can enjoy. Joy is to justice what air is to the body. It is uh, central. It is what sustains us. Yes, you are called to give your lives to the saving of the world. You are called to live for others, to serve, to give yourself up for the sake and the benefit of others. You are called to the saving of the world, to finding and helping all the immigrant children who are being taken from their parents, to demanding that your money stops fueling the genocide of children in Gaza, to healing the earth, to caring for your neighbor, to listening to the elderly, You are called to actively work for the saving of the world, but you also have to savor it. Contrary to how we often think about, is it, do I need to enhance the world today or enjoy the world today? It's not an either or. It's, as my friend Debbie Manning would often say, it's an and both. And you cannot experience the fullness of one if you choose to neglect the other. And so the question then, I guess, for me has become, how do we actually go about doing that? How do we actually have joy in a healthy marriage with our justice? And I think that Jesus gives us a central tip. He says that in the midst of all of your resistance, in the midst of all of the rejection that is coming your way, rejoice. Now, the Greek word here for rejoice is chairo. Yeah, say that a couple times. Uh, because it feels weird. And I actually don't even know if I'm saying that right, but it's hyro. And hyro, it means, um, well, it means essentially this inner welling up of goodness and joy, the exchanging of kindness with God. And I say God's because when we think about how Greek words, what they mean, what they embody, what they're trying to say inside of them, it's important to understand that we cannot just go to a Greek dictionary and get the meaning straight from there. We also have to understand not just what the word means, but how the word was actually used. And when we look at how the word hiero was used at the time when Jesus was using it, we come to see that the word was often used in places like Homer's writings, for example, um, it was used to, to talk about uh, saying farewell to others to get alone by yourself. And so in, in that, that context, oftentimes, uh, rejoicing was this word that was used to go alone and exchange pleasantries with the gods. And so when Jesus is saying this, he's not talking about um, the excessive celebration dance in the touchdown end zone. I clearly know sports. <laughs> the touchdown end zone. You know you know the touchdown end zone is. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about doing the dirty bird. That's not what he's saying right here. What he's saying is going into a quiet place and intimately receiving the joy that God has over your life. Celebrating God's love. It is remembering that you have been remembered. It is your work of fighting the the natural tendency for forgetting that you have not been forgotten. And this is so important because what we know today amongst one another... Uh, in our society, is that the only real lovers are those who first recognize that they are the ones who are loved. We, we cannot bring good news that we first haven't received. We cannot give what we, we, ha- we don't have. And this is a choice. 
I mean, that's what I kind of, I really like this about this word is that it, it has intentionality embedded inside of it. You have to say goodbye to your friends. It is used in farewell context. You have to uh, say goodbye, walk away, find your, your quiet, find your peace, and find your inner celebration and healing and restoration. And here's why this is so important, because oftentimes I think, mm, you know, I don't want, okay, so I'll say from my own spiritual formation, I tend to think that it just is going to happen. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to grow into, I'm going to grow into being like John Crosby. I'm going to grow into being um, people who uh, are spiritually very healthy, people who are, uh, who know that they are loved by God and can walk confidently in that love uh, I just think that's going to happen, but I, I actually don't think that just happens. <laughs> I actually think that you have to put some time and sweat and energy into receiving that love. Not because you have to earn it, not because you have to somehow uh, bargain it out of God, but because you need to make space to hear it. How busy are our lives? How nonstop, violently chaotic are our lives? And so we have to cultivate this as a priority in our lives. I think about, you know, my two boys. I've heard this analogy used by, by another preacher. I can't remember who used it, but it just really sank with me years ago. And um, I have two boys. They get, they get dirty all of the live long day, literally always in the mud, always picking boogers, always making a mess. They're always dirty. But they don't do showers. They do baths. They want to see what they're accomplishing. You know what I mean? They want to see whether or not they actually were dirty. And so they take baths, and what happens at the beginning of baths is that they ask for a hot tub, which is um, dad just turning up the water a little bit warmer. It's not an actual hot tub, but we it's just warmer water. That's all it is. And they love it for about 15 minutes until they start screaming about the water turning cold. Why does the water turn cold? Well, it's inevitable, right? This is an obvious thing, but I think it's helpful to think about this. It's inevitable that the hot tub water, the warmth of the water, is eventually going to drop down to 70 degrees, which is the temperature of the room. And that's not because 70 degrees is the more dominant temperature, but it's because the room is set by an ecosystem that keeps it at 70 degrees, whereas the bath water is not. Make sense? The room temperature is actually being proactively managed, cultivated. It is being sustained, whereas the bathtub water is just sitting there and growing stagnant. My point being is this. Whatever I cultivate, it dominates. Whatever I am intentional about, it becomes. My thermostat dictates what the thermometer will say. And so when we are taking time to cultivate the inner life, the reception of joy, the reminder that we are loved, that dominates over the 10,000 voices that we hear every day that say that we are not. To hear that you are enough in a world that says that you never will be, that's really important. That's healing. And so as you think about your day and you think about your life, is your body, your soul, your spirit, your ability to receive joy, the inner you, are you treating it like a thermometer or a thermostat? Are you responding to the room that you're, you're in? Or, or do you have an ecosystem within you that's strong enough to stand its ground amidst another ecosystem that would like to change you? See, in our work for justice and bringing uh, heaven into here, many of us may feel famished or exhausted or empty, and it's not because we are weak. It's only because we're not well-fed. 
we have failed to pause long enough to actually receive the glory of God. And so I guess we're asking the the question wrong in these circumstances. I mean, oftentimes when we think about doing justice and acts of uh, collective liberation, we rush into these scenes, these protests, these places of pain, these places in need of healing, and we ask the question of how can we bring wholeness here? But the better question just may be, how can I be whole here? Which means ultimately that you have to be here. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Exodus 24, 12, where God says to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I love that text. Because did you hear it? Come up to me on the mountain and be there. I love that text. Because in my life, in, in uh, forgive me, but I'm going to uh, project in your life as well. We can spend so many years of our lives climbing mountains only to fail to be present at the peak when we arrive. So many years overcoming obstacles, never stopping to see how far we've come. Do not just climb the mountain. Celebrate the mountain that you climbed. Enjoy the view. Sit and hear and listen and drink deep. Um, when I think about suffering and joy and justice and how the whole thing comes together, there always are, are two people in particular that come to mind for me, two people that I fanboy over more than most two spiritual giants that I, I look up to so much. Um, the first one is, is Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Brief cliff note reminder, uh, Bishop Tutu spearheaded the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, what happened at this time during genocide is that a whole group of people would go into a village and slaughter everybody that was there with machete, and a few people ended up surviving. Terrible, horrific uh, disgusting acts of humanity. Years later, what happened was that a person who took the machete into the village and killed this person's family, the survivors' families, and their friends and their children, they would have to stand in front of the entire village that they slaughtered, in front of those who, who survived their evil, and then they would have to say that they were sorry. And then the person who survived, who was the recipient of that apology, they had to figure out what they're going to do with that. Again and again, Bishop Tutu, he would spearhead this movement. He has seen ugly beyond compare. He has seen holiness and healing beyond compare. He has seen the worst of the world, and he has seen some of the most beautiful moments of hope and redemption and restoration. And on top of all the difficulties and the mountains that he himself has climbed, for the past 20 years or so, he's been battling prostate cancer. In fact, I think just this past week, he announced that he can no longer do any traveling because of it. He's my first person that I think of when I think about somebody who has uh, seen the worst of it all, who has gone into heaviness without becoming heavy. The second person that I think about is the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama, who is, I believe, the 14th Dalai Lama, uh, he became the sole spiritual and political leader of Tibet at the age of 15, which is when China officially occupied Tibet and stole away their freedom. And so think about at the age of 15, what you were doing, getting your permit, kissing that boy, kissing that girl, listening to NSYNC, doing what you do. This man was leading Tibet. He was leading Tibet against China. Think about that. It's crazy. He hasn't been able to go home now in over 60 years. 60 years he has been exiled from his home. And in doing so, he has seen again some of the worst that the world has had to offer. 
Now, you would think that when these two come together, that these two in, in their times, given that all that they have gone through, given that all their eyes have seen, that they would be heavy day drunks who struggle to get out of bed, struggle to enjoy anything in life because they've just been in so much darkness. And yet, when they come together, they always end up dancing. When they come together, they end up having these fake fights with each other. When they come together, they make fun of each other's weight and receding hairlines, and they laugh. When they come together, they, they don't write books on how awful and scary and uh, bound to go to hell the world is. When they come together, they write books on joy. In fact, when you open my Bible, there's a photo of them where uh, the Dalai Lama is trying to kiss Desmond Tutu, and Desmond Tutu's got his hand on his face like, get off me, man, and it is hilarious, and I have that in my Bible because I want whatever it is that they have in them. I, I want to be able to face the heaviness like they have faced without becoming heavy. I want to live with my heart wide open and have it be broken without breaking along with it. I want to know how they are able to go into these hard places and hold the hard ships without ever becoming hard. I want to know how to, f to lament and laugh, right? And when I ask them and I think about them, I ask how do they do it, uh, and I study their lives and think about where they have been and where they intend to go, uh, they, they have made a consistent ritual of rejoicing. And they do so in two particular ways. Let me, let me point this out really quick. They have seen some of the worst of the world, and yet they haven't seen life as something to be feared, but rather as something that is fragile. This is the beautiful thing about studying their lives and understanding what they have seen and listening to their words and their wisdom, because what they talk about is how when you go into the heart of heaviness, you can actually experience joy there. It's joy that's not KWB disconnected joy. It's not uh, playing golf while the California fires are all around you. It's not burying your head in the sand, delusional, selfish, ignorant joy. It's a joy that's in the heart of the darkness. And here's why that's, that's happening, is that when you go into the heart of the heaviness and you recognize that the worst things could happen, you hold the ones that you love a little bit closer. There's something powerful about recognizing the fragility of life, Re recognizing that the worst things that could happen, they all could happen. Think about if you're a parent. If you are a parent and you are terrified about all of the, the terrible things that could happen to your kids, your kid might become an alcoholic, your kid might end up in prison, your kid might end up on the streets, they might end up in uh, whatever, right? All of the fears that keep us up at nights. Those things, they, they could happen. All that those ugly things that might unfold, they could happen. They could happen to your child. But they're not happening right now. They're not happening today. So when you, when you get this, when you recognize the fragility of life, you go from like this white knuckling need for a certain outcome and you actually get to stop trying to enhance the world and you get to enjoy it instead. You stop holding on to the outcomes and you start holding on to your kid instead. If you're an entrepreneur and you're starting a job, it might not work out. If you're a student and you're being trained in something that nobody's going to hire for in five years, that might be true. If you are starting a church and nobody's coming and it's uh, going to be a crash and burn, yeah, 
It might be a, a one and done. It might be a real short stint. But not today. Today you get to start that company. Today you get to study that material. Today you get to lead this people who are looking for hope and redemption. Today you get to do these beautiful things. When you recognize the fragility of life, you get to actually experience it for what it is because you know that what is here today might not be here tomorrow and you don't have a say in the outcome. All you have a say in is in the outlook. And so we embrace the fullness as it is. Today you get to try this art. Today you get to dance to this song. Today you get to be married to that person. I said this last night, but how often in marriage do we wake up in bed next to a person that we have completely forgotten as a gift and have completely taken for granted? He might not be here tomorrow. She might not be here tomorrow. How will you celebrate that gift? You know that joy in the Greek language, Cairo, it is, it is, is the same word for gift. It is rooted in that same word of gift. The person that you are with, the person that you are next to, the baby that you are raising, the church that you are leading, the art that you are taking on, the hobby that you have picked up, the company that you have started, all of these things, they're gifts. Open them accordingly. Celebrate them. Because what happens is heaviness clings to things. It becomes addicted to these outcomes that we think we need to have. But the reality is, is that we don't get guarantees in life. We just don't. Our addiction to certainty and guarantees it is the fastest way to rob us of the joy that comes with being alive. And so from these two men, I've, I've recognized that when you see how horrible it all can go, then the only proper response is to cherish what you have, to dance with those you love when you get together, to laugh, to drink good wine, to smoke that rare cigar, to take that trip, to stay up too late, to eat that cake and care more about your soul in your stomach. The second thing I've recognized in these two men who have found a way to make their joy sustain their work of justice is that they begin their days with goodness. The Dalai Lama is up every morning at 3 a.m. He meditates for five hours. Five hours. That's what he does. The first five hours of his day starting at 3 a.m. The Desmond Tutu, the Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, he's up every morning at 4 a.m. and he prays for the first five hours of his day as well. I'm not saying you need to do that. I'm not saying set your alarm clock to 3 or 4 a.m. and be on your knees for five hours straight. But what I am saying is redundant of what I said earlier is, and that is you need to cultivate these things in your life. You need to intentionally receive good news. You have to intentionally remember that you are loved. The psalmist in Psalm 143, he says, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. One of the foundational practices that keeps joy in the midst of calling for justice is remembering the gifts that you have, remembering that you've been remembered, the work of not forgetting that you have not been forgotten. See, what we know now from both cognitive scientists and our own personal affirmations is that gratitude and joyfulness and abundance, it all comes not from accumulation, but from appreciation, from climbing onto the mountain and enjoying the view, from noticing the miracles inside of the mundane. Joy has its roots in gift. Joy comes from the awareness that life is a gift. So think about the moments in your life where you've had the most joy, where you've come across an experience that you think, man, what a gift. Joy is the only appropriate response to the gift that is life. 
And so in all of our work for justice, as we move forward and we pursue righteousness and we experience persecution amidst this pursuit, how do we actually make space to rejoice and be glad? Because we cannot do one without the other. Joy sustains our work for justice. Let me close with this um, story that I shared last night. It's, it's about this 19th century freedom fighter named Emma Goldman. Some of you maybe know Emma Goldman. She's a major figure, actually, in the history of um, American radicalism and, and feminism, um, anarchism. Goldman was one of the first to publicly crusade on behalf of free speech, birth control, women's equality, um, independence, and union organization. When she criticized the mandatory conscription of young men in the military during World War I, she was actually put in prison for two years. And later on, in I think 1919, uh, she was deported. She was sent to Russia where she kept doing her work there until she died in 1940. That's a little brief bio on, on Emma Golden. When we stop to ask, though, how Emma Goldman was able to sustain the journey from start to finish the way that she did, there's a lot of insight that we could gain from one particular moment in her story. There's this moment where she's at a party in New York, and she was on the dance floor, and she was letting her head down. She was having a good time, and she was not shy about it. And so when a fellow activist saw her on the dance floor dancing wildly, uh, she was pulled out of the room and she was scolded for her dancing with such reckless abandon because she wasn't, you don't see it, but I'm doing quote fingers right now, she wasn't dignifying the cause. And when she heard this man yelling at her and she heard this man saying that she wasn't dignifying the cause, she wasn't uh, dignifying the pain in the world and the divisions, before she went back into the party and onto the dance floor, she said what are now her famous words that have been with us for over a century. She looks at the man and she says, Sir, if I can't dance, I don't want to be a part of your revolution. Friends, as we uh, move forward, both as the table community and as individuals in our lives, or whoever you might be in whatever story you might be stepping into, my prayer for all of us is that as we remain committed to bringing systems of injustice to a close, as we remain uh, committed to bringing racial inequality and inequity to a close, as we remain committed to bringing xenophobia to a close, homophobia to a close, Islamophobia to a close, that we would also remain committed to keeping the dance floor open. That we would remain committed to not just saving the world, but also savoring it. The size of our problems cannot outweigh the source of our pleasure. Take time, be still, taste and see that the Lord is good. You are loved, friends. And I'll close with this benediction that we say every week uh, at the table um, that I need to hear for myself every day. No matter who you are or what you have done, who you love or what you have lost, where you have gone, or where you have stayed, know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table, because you are a beloved child who is cherished by God, and you belong. We'll see you.